0: It must have been a shock when it happened. And I suppose that no one expected an outcome like this. Because even though the people of God had been persecuted now for years up to this point out of Jerusalem. And we've seen that uh, the Christians were scattered and and dealing with even uh, Saul going to Damascus. And trying to find Christians to drag them back to Jerusalem and to put them on trial. And yet something just absolutely staggering happens at this moment. That you have Herod Agrippa, who reigns just a very short time over Judea, he is joined in on this persecution. And Acts 12 verse 1 says that he's violently, violently laying hands on Christians And it doesn't tell us why exactly he's done that. But we are told that he has the Apostle James. Now the surprising part is not that the Christians are being persecuted or that James would be arrested. That probably was not the the, the moment that would have been so eye-opening and so defining. But the shocking start of this chapter and what must have been just unbelievable to the people of God at that moment is that we're simply told in verse 2 that the apostle James is killed. And I would suppose that you say okay well Christians might have been persecuted and even killed but one of the apostles. One of the apostles. One of those who had been with Jesus. One who had been with him from the very beginning and even to his death and to his resurrection has now been executed by a wicked ruler, Herod. And if that was not shocking enough, I'd hope you find verse three to even be of more interest is that there isn't any kind of societal rage in Judea and they all go, oh no, this is a a terrible thing. How how dare you kill one of the apostles at at this time? We're, We're told there in verse three that, uh, everybody's happy with that. That it pleased the Jewish nation to see that James had been arrested and had been killed. The reason why that should be shocking to us is you might remember, we were told back in Acts chapter 2 as well as in Acts chapter 5 that the Christians were gaining favor in, in the community. That, that they were gaining with favor and people looked upon them with awe and respect. And yet that's changed by this point. And now we're more than a decade later and it seems the opposite has taken place. And now you have the Jewish people cheering the death of James. And if that were then not enough, Herod, seeing that he is gaining favor by executing apostles, decides, well, hey, let's go ahead and endear myself more to my constituents. And he says there in in verse four that he now grabs Peter. And puts him in prison with the very intent of doing the exact same thing. they are going to put him on trial and have him executed as well. It had to be just startling at this point. Just absolutely startling to see the death of the Apostle James. And now what looks like another hopeless situation that Peter has now been arrested And the same outcome looks imminent for him as well. And in the middle of all that, I would ask you, so what were the Christians supposed to do? What were Christians doing while this is happening? While you have a wicked ruler and a wicked nation who are happily seizing apostles, killing one apostle and now attempting to kill the next Putting them on trial. And don't forget verse 1 says that Herod's doing this to other Christians as well. Other followers of Jesus. They're being harmed by Herod as well. What are the people of God supposed to do about this? I want you to notice what we're told in verse 5. That it says that the people of God. What they are doing as their response is pray. This is the response of the people of God, that the people of God are praying earnestly in the midst of all of this. That is their response. In fact, I hope that we would realize that this is the most important thing they could be doing. It is the most powerful thing they could be doing. It would be the most effective thing they could be doing is what they are doing is that they are spending their time in prayer. They are pleading to God. They are continually, intensely praying to God for Peter's circumstance. And this is how we see the Christians over and over again handling mistreatment, handling what's happening to them, handling these kinds of persecutions, handling their suffering and difficulty, is that they are gathering and they are praying. And I hope you will think about that for a minute. Would we think of that as something as too little to do for Peter while he's in prison on the brink of being executed? Now he's in jail. James was just executed. Peter's next. The text gives you the implication. The only reason he hasn't been executed yet is it so happens to be Feast of Unleavened Bread week and we have to clear the Passover before Peter can be put on trial and killed. And notice that in our minds, we might think, well, shouldn't the Christians be doing something more? And I want you to consider that they looked at it and said, this is the most important thing we must be doing. That it is not too little of a thing to be praying to God in this circumstance. Prayer was not the last resort because all of their other options had failed. And they were trying all these other means and doing all of these other activities. They're just praying. They're putting these things in the hands of God. And begging for God to be able to do something about this. And I hope that we would think about the reality of the importance of that as we talk about this morning about God being glorified, that this is a, an important idea of what the glorification of God looks like. That we glorify God when we understand that prayer is the most important avenue and the only avenue for the people of God to take. And so often we can think of prayer as well, I'll try that because everything else I've tried to do has failed. We have a tendency to fall into that kind of thinking. Let me do everything that I can possibly do in my life. I'll, I'll sort it all out. And when all of my options have been exhausted, I guess that I need to turn to God in prayer. And please consider, is that God glorified? If I'm going to try to take care of everything in my life, myself, and only when I finally realize that I've completely wrecked it and I can't solve my own problems. Okay, God, help me out. I want you to see that this is God glorifying right here. Because they're not, you know, going covert operations and let's break Peter out of prison. You know, they're not making a scene about all this. They're just praying. And they're praying continually. And they're praying earnestly because that's the God glorifying thing to do, because that's what the people of God do, that the people of God pray and that we would never think of prayer as doing too little, but would be the most important thing. If you think about when you've talked to other people about your circumstances and things like that and things that might be going on in your life or in other people's lives that, you know, family members, friends, what have you. Isn't the most powerful thing that you can hear from somebody who's a follower of Jesus telling you, I will pray about that. That's the most important thing. And it's the most powerful thing. And it's the most effective thing. And that's what these Christians understand. And that's exactly what they are doing is that they are praying and praying and praying. Now, before we leave this beginning point, we could preach the whole time for five verses. I won't do it, but one more thing. Do you suppose that the church had earnestly been praying for James while he was in prison? Do you suppose that it was only for Peter that they started praying Or do you suppose that the people of God had been praying for the apostle James, but God said, no, I submit to you, they were. And the reason why I think that is important is that as the Christians are praying for James who is in prison and under the threat of death to be executed by Herod and God says no and James is executed that the people of God do not say well that doesn't work so we shouldn't pray for Peter what a waste of time. They just double down on it and go okay now we're going to pray for Peter. They don't look at prayer and go, well, that must be ineffective. Now, that must be useless. Or they don't even think, well, God doesn't listen to us. They don't think it's a waste of time. Even though God said no to one individual and his circumstance did not lead the people of God to think that prayer is ineffective or useless. And I think that is such an important point aspect for our consideration in this shocking start as it opens up for us is that even on the heels of the death of James we see the people of God continuing to pray and they are not using prayer as the last resort but are using prayer as the only resort and they are praying for Peter's deliverance we don't know why God said no I'm always amazed at the absolute concise nature of the first two verses of Acts 12. I'd take a whole book on what happened right there. How did that take place? Why did God say no? What did that mean? And we're not told any of that. We're just told James is executed. And that's it. And I think it's important for us to see that even in the times when God says no. In times when you would suppose that this would have been a clear yes from God. The people of God still prayed. I mean, if there was any time if you were praying a prayer and you would think certainly God would say yes. be praying for the rescue of the Apostle James from execution. Yes. I say, if there's any time God's going to say yes, if there's any time that I'm praying according to the will of God, is God save the Apostle James? And yet God says no. And even still the people of God are praying. What a shocking start. And that leads to really a shocking result as the rest of the paragraph unfolds. We're told that Herod now is, has put James in prison, according to verse six, and he is not taking this lightly at all. You see in verse six uh, that he is bound between two soldiers and chains. There's Uh, Guards at the doors who are guarding uh, the prison. Uh, The way that God is going to deal with Peter here is certainly fascinating because please consider all the things that God could have done in this moment. As Herod sends his men to go arrest Peter, God allows that to happen. And God does not rescue Peter on the first night of his arrest. He's been left in here for days. And we're told in verse six, on the very night, when Peter is about to be brought out for trial and execution, however many days that took, whether Peter was arrested at the front of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and it's been seven days in jail, or somewhere in the middle of that week-long feast, Peter's been sitting in prison and it doesn't look good for him. And God doesn't come to intervention at the beginning of it or in the middle of it, but on the very night, the very night when his execution is about to happen, verse seven, behold, an angel stood next to him, a light shone in his cell. He struck Peter on his side and woke him up saying, get up quickly. The chains fall off his hands. The angel tells him, dress yourself, put on your sandals. He does so. He says to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. And he didn't know that what was being done by the angel was real. Verse 9, he thought he was seeing a vision. But when they passed through the first guard and then the second guard and they came to the iron gate that was leads into the city, it just opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along the street and immediately the angel left him. And in verse 11, Peter came to himself and said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the jewish people were expecting i love that peter just thinks he's just watching this unfold in his head <laughs> and by the time the cool breeze of, of of the outdoors have not hit him he goes this really happened that all just took place and so what is Peter going to do? It says in verse 12, he realized this. He goes to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name is Mark. And there's many gathered there. Look at the end of verse 12. What are they all doing? Praying. This is the importance. They're praying for Peter at this moment. They're praying for these circumstances. They've gathered at night. And they are praying for Peter. And it says there in verse 13: when he came, he knocked at the door of the gateway. The servant girl Rhoda came to answer, and recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she didn't open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, You're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, No, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, the door they saw him and were amazed but motioning to them with his hand to be silent he described to them how the lord had brought him out of the prison he said tell these things to james and to the brothers and he departed and went to another place now you have to love how that scene unfolds and one of the reasons that you have to love how that scene unfolds is because the people of god who are praying for peter are surprised at how god answered the prayer Aren't they at this very moment praying for Peter's release? Yes. And so then there's a knock at the door and Rhoda says and leaves Peter out there as Peter's at the door. And what's the answer of the whole church? No, it's not. (laughs) No, you're you're crazy. You're out of your mind. It can't be him. He's in jail. (laughs) And then finally they go open the door and it really is Peter. You have to love how God can answer prayer. Because I don't suppose that any of them was praying the prayer that night like this Lord, Send an angel who will shine a bright light in the prison cell while keeping all of the guards asleep and have his chains fall off his hands and have him get dressed and lead him to the prison gate without any of the guards knowing and have the gate open all by itself and lead him into the city without anyone seeing or knowing any better. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't think that's how that prayer went. And it's clear that's not how that prayer went because they're surprised to see Peter at the gate. (laughs) They're stunned that it's actually him. There is something beautiful about how God is able to answer prayer and how answered prayer glorifies God. And that's what Peter says. Peter goes, this is God. This is the hand of God who has rescued me from Herod's hand. Herod is trying to appease the people all the more and continue his political popularity among the Jews. God has rescued me from his hand and he puts that on God. And You can just imagine the praise and the joy that is given to God that very night in seeing that God has rescued the apostle Peter from the hands of Herod. Of course, the rest of the scene is also amazing because in verse 18, we're told in the next next day, there's no d- little disturbance over trying to figure out what happened. You have to love that. The, the soldiers wake up. There's no Peter on their chains anymore. Uh, the gates to the... The prison doors are, are flung open, and everybody's looking around for Peter. Verse 19 says Herod's searching for him. He can't find him. He now examines all the guards, and once they all give their report about what happened, they're all put to death for failing at their job. Little did Herod understand. There was nothing those guards could do. And Peter was going to be rescued. And from that moment on, it says in verse 19, Herod leaves Judea and goes to Caesarea, which puts us to the shocking ending. While Herod is in Caesarea, we're told here that the people of Tyre and Sidon have come in verse 20 because they're looking for, to make peace with Herod because Herod supplies food to their people and to their nation. And verse 21 says on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and took his seat on the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting the voice of a God and not of a man. You just imagine that chanting of the people. Now you're trying to gain the favor of the king so that he will supply what the country needs. And he sits down in his royal robes. According to Josephus, he looked brilliant that day. And all the people begin shouting over and over again as, as Herod gives his, his wonderful speech, the voice of a God and not of a man, the voice of a God and not of a man. Verse 22 and. As they are shouting that, we see in verse 23, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. I want us to think about what happens here because I think this ending is startling and yet it is the key thread for the whole chapter about giving God, glory. But what I think is so fascinating about this, it is not as Herod had acted like what you see other leaders do or other emperors do or other kings do, which is commanding the people to consider him as a God. Uh, Many leaders have done that. Uh, That's not what happens here. He doesn't say the only way you can address me is as God, like emperors later For the Roman Empire would certainly do. And I think it is interesting to think about how often you even see that idea, not only in leaders, but also even historically in leaders that you read about in the scriptures. Think about Nebuchadnezzar, who stood on his palace and looked upon the land and declared all the great things that he had accomplished by his own hand. Look at this great land I rule and look what an amazing ruler I am and look how I've I've been so good to these people and God had a message for him (laughs) and had to humble him for his arrogance and not giving glory to God. But I think it is interesting in regards to Herod that Herod is giving his speech. And the people of their own accord, it appears, begin shouting, Oh, he is so great. Look how great he is. He's not a man. He is a God. He is our rescuer. He's amazing. And I think what is interesting is that Herod does not stand up and say the very words that Peter said to Cornelius were... Peter says to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, I'm just a man like you. You know, Enough of the chanting, enough of the glory. I'm no better than you. I'm no different than you. But rather, you'll notice that Herod accepts the praise. He allows that glory to terminate on himself. Oh, you think I'm so great. I'll receive that. Yes, I am a great ruler. I am a great king. A Voice of a God. I like that. Keep that up. Keep chanting that. He doesn't turn the crowds away from that. He doesn't tell them to stop. He doesn't tell them they're wrong. He doesn't issue any kind of humble statement of how false this is. No, he receives that glory and takes it and goes on with that. Yeah, keep a voice of a God. Yes. And I want us to realize that this is such a big deal to God. That God be glorified is such a big deal. It's such a big deal that Herod dies over it. That's how big of a deal it is. That ultimately when you think about the essence of the scriptures. The glorification of God is everything. Think about the life of Moses for a minute. Now, Moses is a human. And yet for the whole of his life, there is not a single sin that is ever accounted to him until the very end. And we're sure that as a human, there were all kinds of sins he would have committed in his life. And yet God wants you to know only one sin about Moses. Just one. After, you know, thousands and hundreds of thousands he would have committed as a human being. I want you to know just one of them. Let me give you the context. The context of that sin is that the people of Israel are complaining yet again. They are complaining about having no water in the wilderness and they have charged Moses and Aaron as essentially the ones who have brought them out here into the wilderness to die. And so God told Moses to take his staff and to command water to come from a rock to provide water for the people. But here's what Moses did in Numbers 20 and verse 9. So Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he had commanded him. Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Listen, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water came out abundantly, and the congregation, their livestock, drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me to show my holiness before the eyes of the Israelites. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. One sin of Moses is recorded. Only one. And what does God want to emphasize? You didn't show my glory. You didn't show my holiness. You didn't make me supreme. You essentially stole the glory for yourself. Did you catch that in the words as they ascribe this miraculous ability to themselves? Shall we bring water out of this rock? God says, you took it on yourself. You put the glory on you. He didn't put it on God. And that is a fundamental picture throughout the scriptures is the need to give God glory. And what I want us to do in these last few minutes is just talk about how we can fail to do that. And I want to talk about that in terms of the lens of what this chapter has given us, because this chapter has given us three pictures of how we can fail at giving God glory, though I would submit to you there are millions of ways that we can do that. But let's just use what the text has presented to us. Number one, we can fail to give God glory when God says no to our prayers. And you say, no, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But it does. Do we give God glory? Do we still praise him? And do we still honor him? And do we still trust him even when God says no? I think that's something powerful that you see in these first five verses of the chapter. Is that God said no to the prayers regarding the Apostle James. He's executed and they're still praying to God. They're still honoring God. The next verse is not. And they all gave up their Christianity and went home and said, well, what's the point of this? Obviously, prayer doesn't work and God doesn't care. They honor God when God said no. And I think that is so important. Is that friends, even when God tells us no, how much we need to still go back to God. And praise him and give him glory and honor him. That God will say no. He will say no to things that you think he should certainly say yes. If I took a vote of the congregation and I asked how many people think that God should have saved the apostle James. I think we'd all go yeah that would make a whole lot of sense. Twelve apostles still teaching the gospel makes more sense than eleven. Why don't we have that happen? But they're God glorifying and they still praise him for what he's doing and they're still trusting him, praying, praising and looking to him. And take a moment for yourself and do think about all the times that God has said no to you in your life. It's probably a lot. Are there at least a few of those times where you are glad God did say no? Where you thought for certain that this is what God needed to do? He said no. And on a few occasions, you can look back and go, I'm glad. You were right, God. And it's those moments I want you to hold on to And to remember for when God says no, that you can trust God. That you can praise him when he says no. That God is at work. That God still loves you. That God still cares about you. He's still listening to you. And he's still working for your salvation. Even when he says no. That's what you see here in Acts 12. I am always stunned about the death of the Apostle James. But it gives me great encouragement that God said no to the Apostle James. He's going to say no to me. And I know God still cares. And I know God still loves him. and that God can be glorified even through those no answers. Number two, by the same token, the other side of the coin is we can fail to give God glory when he does answer our prayers. How many times will we plead to God for something? God says yes, and we forget to be thankful for Him saying yes. How many times has God said yes to you to your prayers? I'd say a lot as well. And yet, how many times do we forget to come back to God and give Him the glory and give Him the thanks? Jesus told parables and had stories like that. One of my favorite, how about the ten lepers? Nine are just, yay, God healed me. Only one, only one comes back and understands, I need to give glory to God for that. That God said yes. And there are so many things that God can do in our lives for us that we can just not observe that He's accomplished, the yeses that He's accomplished. We just forget, forget to tell him, thank you. Let us never do that. As we look to God to answer our prayers and he answers prayers, perhaps in ways we didn't expect. We need to be thankful. God didn't answer the prayer about Peter in the way I think anybody expected And it is worth our while to look back over our lives and realize there may be things where God answered as a yes, but it wasn't the way that we had planned in our head to be a yes. And so we thought it was a no, but it really was a yes. Because I was so stuck on the way God was going to bring about the answer had to be in this one way. And I might be sitting inside like they were And not realize there's answered prayer right there knocking at the door because God wouldn't have answered it like that, right? And yet he did. So give glory to God when God answers and when God answers in ways that we may not even expect. Finally, we fail to give God glory when we accept praise rather than turning that praise back to God. It is always important for us to remember that everything, everything about who we are, what we do, and what we have is only because of God. Are you good at your job? It's because God gave you the intellect and the physical ability to do it. And God should be praised for what you are able to do. If you have wealth, God should be praised because he's the one that gave it to you. Anything that we have, anything that we enjoy, any relationship with we have. So we're talking about people, possessions, abilities, whatever it is. Everything in our life is only because... God has allowed that for us to happen. The warning that God gave over and over again is that we would forget God when God would give us those things. He told Israel that in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 17, he warned them, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth.' We never do that, right? We would never ever think that anything that we have in this life is because of what we've done. This is exactly what God was warning about. Don't you dare ever say within yourself, it's because I'm so strong, I'm so smart, I'm so capable, I'm so wise, I've got it all figured out and that's why my life is the way that it is. You shall remember the Lord your God for it is he who gives you the power to get the wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as this day. I want to end by just thinking about it like this, that there is nothing that we have and nothing that we enjoy that doesn't come to us from God. And what I'm encouraging for us to do today and in the the days ahead as we think about giving God glory is to think about all the areas where there are missed opportunities where God should be praised, but we fail to do it. Let me give you an example of that. Let's just take a day like today up to this point. Thank you, Lord, that you even allowed me to wake up today. Thank you, Lord, that I'm feeling well enough to be here. Thank you, Lord, for allowing me to safely get here as I traveled. Thank you, Lord, for giving me the mind that I can focus on you today. Thank you, Lord, for giving me the breath and the voice to be able to sing to you today. Thank you, Lord, for giving me the eyes and the intellect to be able to look at your word today. What I want you to see is even in the most seemingly insignificant of events, there is lots of room for giving God glory. There are lots of places where we miss the opportunity to give God the praise, to give him the honor, and we must be careful that we are not like Herod, allowing these things to terminate on ourselves. It's because of me and because of my abilities and because of who I am and what I It's because of God. It's because of God you are here this moment. It's because of God you just took your last breath. It's because of God you have what you have. It's because of God that you will do anything that happens the rest of this day. Give God the glory. Because he is worthy of our praise. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father. Lord, a challenging text for us because it is so easy for us to fail to praise you as we ought to. And Lord, let's just confess our sins now. Forgive us for when we have not praised you and trusted you during the times and you've answered no to our prayers. Lord, we pray that we would have a deeper trust and a far greater willingness to glorify you when you do say no. Forgive us, Lord, for when we have not praised you for the times and you have said yes. When we've looked to ourselves, we decided it was because of ourselves rather than seeing that you were the yes in everything that we do in this life and everything that we enjoy. Forgive us, Lord, for when we've allowed Praise to terminate on us as if we are anything. Forgive us for all the simple, subtle moments of life that we take for granted. And we fail to praise you that we were able to eat a meal. That we were able to have another day of life. That we're able to enjoy anything that there is in this world. Forgive us for the times that we just simply fall short on that. Forgive us for when our lives are not glorifying you. Forgive us when we take praise away from you. Lord, I pray that you would help us be far more aware of when we do that. That just put that within our hearts and awaken our senses and awaken our minds to see the times when we are taking glory upon ourselves. That we would see the times when we are failing to thank you and praising you as we ought. When we fail to trust you and we make you the god of last resort rather than making you the place for our only hope and so we pray that you would encourage our lives encourage our souls stir us up to seek you more and to be far more aware of all the good that you have constantly doing to us That lord you do good to us and we don't deserve it you say yes to us we don't deserve it So, Lord, help us to always see that it is you and only you that deserves the glory and praise about our lives and what happens to us in this world. Lord, thank you for your son that makes it through him that we can be forgiven. Thank you for his sacrifice so that we can find rest, that we can find healing. We can find forgiveness and we can find hope in Jesus name. Amen. We'll sing an invitation song now. and We invite you to think about your situation. If anyway, we can help you come to Jesus this very morning to give him glory, turning away from your sins. We want to do that. You can let us know afterward if there's anything that we can do for you. You can be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Uh, anything that we can do to respond to that, let us know afterward, or you can come forward now as we, while we stand and while we sing.